we're going to talk about that in a second, but I want to read uh, this morning's scripture passage, um, which is a continuation in the series we've been in on the Beatitudes. This is from Matthew chapter 5, verse 7. This is the word of the Lord. Blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy. This is the word of the Lord. Praise be to Christ. In Aleppo, Syria, this is one of the most dangerous and tormented cities in the world. Uh, the city has been home base to uh, rebel forces that are trying to overthrow the Syrian dictator Bashar al-Assad, whose response to this opposition has been, um, along with the support of Russia, has been to bomb the city with airstrikes. And as the bombings intensify in Aleppo, the, 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 the prevailing fear uh, that many of the residents there have is the fear of being buried alive. And they have this fear for good reason, and that is that thousands and thousands of people have been buried alive in the rubble of their homes because of these, these bombings. And so in Aleppo, there is a group of people, uh, a volunteer group of Syrian men and women called the Syrian Civil Defense, and they're also known as uh, the White Helmets. Maybe you might have seen uh, floating around uh, social media or on 60 Minutes, this, this uh, bit they did on the White Helmets. The White Helmets are a group of people whose job it is to run into the blast zone whenever a bomb falls and to begin immediately to dig people out of the rubble. That's what they do. They hear a blast and they run toward it. 60 Minutes, when they reported on this story, they said this. They said, the airstrikes day and night obliterate apartments, and they shatter the nerves of the people. Often the bombs are not aimed at military targets. They're not aimed at all. Just a barrel of shrapnel and TNT heaved from a helicopter onto any neighborhood the Assad dictatorship does not control. To date, over 3,000 people have been trained to run into the blast zone to pull people out. It's highly dangerous work, especially because often when there is a bombing, there is a second wave that comes after, but there's no time to wait for that. And so they go in, and many have lost their lives doing this, but the white helmets, they run in and they dig with their hands whatever tools they can find, and they work at this. And they've rescued over 70,000 people in the years that they've been doing this. And one of the rescuers said this. He said that every time he pulled somebody from the rubble, quote, we feel as if we've brought someone back to life. And I would submit to you that at its core, this is what mercy is. It's fighting to bring somebody back to life. It's running into the rubble of another person's catastrophe, another person's situation, whether it's actual or figurative disaster, to find them and to pull them out. So that's an image of mercy. Let me give you one more image of mercy that comes from a lyric uh, in a song written by the, the great uh, songwriter, Canadian songwriter Bruce Coburn, uh, who has a song called Lovers in a Dangerous Time, and he says this. He says, nothing worth anything comes without a fight. You got to kick at the darkness until it bleeds daylight. I think that's another powerful picture of what mercy is. 
It's kicking at the darkness. It's pushing back at the darkness until it gives. So today, that's what we're going to talk about, running into the rubble, kicking at the darkness. We're going to talk about mercy, and I want to tell you exactly where we're going to go for those of you who like to know the roadmap. The first thing we're going to do is we're going to take a minute to reset ourselves in the Beatitudes series that we've been in. Then we're going to define mercy and talk about the mercy we've been shown. And then we're going to conclude by talking about the mercy that we are called then to show other people globally, locally, and individually. And so as we jump back in to our study of the Beatitudes, it's, this, this study is serving as a, as a preamble of sorts to our larger sermon series on the Sermon of the Mount that we're going to be in. Let's, let's just take a minute to reorient ourselves. It's been a couple of weeks since we've been here. The Beatitudes are statements about the condition and the character of a citizen of the kingdom of God. And so first and foremost, they're portraits of Jesus himself. And the first three Beatitudes that we looked at are statements about, about condition. They express need that we have that's met in the work of Christ. So we're poor in spirit, we're people who grieve and mourn, we're meek. And then the fourth Beatitude comes along, and it's sort of a hinge, a pivot point that pivots from beatitudes of condition to beatitudes of character, the stuff we're made of. So if you put it into a story problem, it might read like this, the spirit-poor, mourning, meek citizen of the kingdom of God who hungers and thirsts for righteousness acts on that hunger by its extending mercy, by pursuing purity of heart, by making peace, being a peacemaker, so the first three Beatitudes are about condition, five through eight are about character, which is born out of four, a hunger and thirst for righteousness. I'll tell you that because what that means is these remaining Beatitudes that we're going to be studying, particularly the one that we're in today, is a Beatitude of character, which means that it is a guiding statement about what it means to live with a public faith. These Beatitudes describe what it means to be a Christian in public, which is a value that we have here. It's part of our vision and our mission at CPC. Let me explain a little bit about how this works. To hunger and thirst for righteousness is to long for God to be near. You want Him to be close. You want Him to be present. You want Him to be active. This is your desire. This is your longing. This is what, you, what we need and so we seek him in the same way a thirsty person seeks water. We want it, but even more than that, we know that we need it, and we're lost without it. In God's economy, he says one of the ways that he brings righteousness and justice into this world is through what? It's through his people. But those who hunger and thirst for righteousness are people who are hungering and thirsting for God to work through His people to bring justice and righteousness. You can't separate the two. It means that to hunger and thirst for righteousness is to do more than wish for it. It's to do more than pray for it. It's to act. If we want God to change the world, which includes changing us, we need to recognize that the means by which he usually does this is through his people. There's not a Christian person in this room, if I were to say, 
Are there people who God used to help you understand the gospel? There's not a Christian in this room who would say, no, I kind of got it all from books, right? We have all-star teams of people that we would say it was this person, and it was this person, and it was this young life leader, and it was this uh, mentor of mine, and it was this parent, this grandparent. We have people because this is what God does. To be a Christian is to be a Christian relationally with people. It's to be a Christian in public. To hunger and thirst for righteousness is to be a person who kicks at the darkness until it bleeds light. It's to be a person who says, I sign up to run into the rubble of another person's life knowing that it may cost me something, but I go because of the mercy and the hope, or because of the hope that I have in Christ. That's what mercy is. It's messy. It costs us things. When I was growing up, my parents, who are Roman Catholic, they, they believe very strongly in, in contending for the well-being of unborn children. And so one of the, one of the uh, ways that they did that, one of the practical ways that they did that is there was a, a ministry in our area in Indiana that would, would take women, this was in the early 80s, um, who would take women who were in crisis pregnancy situations, who maybe were considering having an abortion, and would uh, relocate them as they began to show for the last half of their pregnancy, and they would, <coughs> excuse me, and they would go live with a family until they carried the baby to term, and then they could give the baby up for adoption or decide that they wanted to keep the baby. And my parents signed up for this, and so on a number of occasions, we had women come uh, live in our home as they were in this, in, this, um, in this season of their life. Thanks, Todd. And I tell you that, and some of us in this room are thinking that's a beautiful, idealistic picture of, of, of taking somebody in who just needs help, but it's also messy and it's complicated because there's a lot of pain in those situations and there's a lot of confusion and a lot of hurt. And then when you're in the position of somebody who is giving the mercy and offering the mercy, often we don't really even know how to give it or what to give of ourselves or sometimes what we have to give isn't wanted. It's messy, but that's what Christians do. We run into the blast zone, and we begin to rescue and help. Let's talk about the mercy we've been shown. How do we make sense of a beatitude like this? Is Jesus saying, I'm withholding mercy from you until I see evidence in your life that you're showing mercy to other people, and then I'll give it? Mercy is tied to grace. A lot of times you hear mercy and grace together as a couplet, right? They belong together. They are related to each other even though they're not the same thing. Uh, there's a, a theologian and Bible scholar named Richard Linsky who helps us with this. Mercy's tied to grace, but it's distinct from it, and he describes the distinction in this way. See if this helps. He says, mercy, mercy always deals with what we see of pain and misery and distress, the results of sin. Grace always deals with the sin and guilt itself. So mercy extends relief, grace extends pardon. Mercy cures, heals, helps. Grace cleanses and reinstates. Does that make sense? Mercy responds to the effect of sin. Grace responds to sin itself. And so we need to see first that mercy is something that Christ has given to us. It's his gift to his people. Mercy compelled him to the cross to take on the ruin of a sin-struck world. The crucifixion of Jesus 
kicked at the darkness until it gave way to Easter morning. And we are the ones who were pulled from the rubble. We are the ones who were brought to life because of that. And so Christ's mercy is an active mercy. He gives it and then he calls his people to live by it, which means he calls us to imitate it. So when the beatitude says, blessed are the merciful for they shall receive mercy, Jesus is not saying that God will only show us mercy if we show mercy to others first. He's saying God has shown us mercy and so we are called to imitate him in this knowing that he will continue to show us mercy. We're not going to run up against a wall where he says, I'm done. Mercy is a significant thing. Jesus tells us in Matthew 23, it's one of the weightier matters of the law. In the Old Testament, in Micah 6, 8, God demands it of his people. He has shown you, O man, what is good. And what does the Lord require of you? To do justly, to love mercy, and to walk humbly with your God. Obedience to the command to show mercy, obedience to any command of God, is always a response to what God has given. It's never an attempt to get God to give. It just never works that way. It's the good news of the gospel. It's good news. You will never, ever, ever be able to pry anything from the hand of God. So you don't even have to try. You just don't. All we can do is receive from his hand, what he gives. John Stott says it this way. He says, we can't merit mercy by mercy or forgiveness by forgiveness. We can't receive mercy and forgiveness of God unless we repent, and we can't claim to have repented of our sin if we are unmerciful toward the sins of others. The mercy we've been shown in Christ is a sending mercy. It's God's response to our problem of sin and brokenness. And it's then something that we're called to imitate. We now dig through the rubble. We push back against the darkness. How can we not? Mercy is kindness to the poor in spirit. Dan Doriani, who's a seminary professor and a pastor, he says this, and I love this because it takes the gun out of the hand of the self-righteous. He says this, when we recognize our spiritual poverty, our weakness and sin, we see the weakness and sin of others differently. If we are poor in spirit, we come to understand our own failings and develop a certain patience with them. We do this, don't we? We have a certain patience with our own shortcomings and failings. He goes on to say, as a result, we learn to be tender and empathetic and patient and compassionate with the failings of others. Mercy requires patience with the failings of others. But that is the mercy we've been shown in Christ. His compassion, His empathy, His redemptive work in our lives, which displays great patience with our weaknesses and our shortcomings. He responds. This is the mercy we've been shown. So what does it look like then for us to show mercy ourselves? Because mercy is not just an emotion. It's not a feeling. It's gritty. It's hard. It's complicated. 
Nobody's super graceful at it. It's an offer and a willingness to help other people. So what does it look like? What does mercy look like specifically? Well, Jesus doesn't give us a lot of specificity when he gives us this beatitude. He doesn't tell us what acts of mercy to show. He doesn't tell us who to show them to. Sometimes an entire country needs mercy because of a natural disaster. Sometimes it's an individual person because of a moral collapse. But Jesus, I don't think, felt the need to elaborate because mercy is a response to a range of needs, global and local and individual, communal, immediate, ongoing, practical, emotional, spiritual, physical, social. And so I want us to, as we, as we, as we wrap up, to, to unpack the, the global, the local, the personal. What does it mean to, to show mercy globally, to show it locally, to show it personally? Globally, on a cultural global scale, mercy likes, looks like doing what God says this is the law, is caring for orphans and widows. It's helping the poor and the vulnerable in real ways. We've never lived in a time where we have more immediate access to real, actual help. There are so many ways that we can help around the world. It's a strange, beautiful, wonderful, complicated time that we live in where we can really practically help people who are in need. And so we do so. We get involved in things. We support missions and organizations that kick against the darkness of things like human trafficking and tyranny and injustice. We get involved in collective efforts to feed the poor, to help provide basic needs like clean water and education and medication for diseases like malaria and HIV and the Zika virus. We give our time. We give our abilities, our, 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 our talents, our resources. We contribute all of these things. And everybody in this room can do that in some capacity or another. We can be part of the team pushing back against the darkness and running into the blast zone on a global scale. For some of us, it means that we actually go to these places around the world. Quick show of hands. How many of you have been on a mission trip of some kind, short-term, long-term? Show of hands. Okay, that's, that's a lot of people. If I asked this question five years from now, many more hands would go up as well because it's something that we do. We go to these places. We bring ourselves to the need, and we help serve there. And when we do, I just want to acknowledge something. When we do this, we carry with us a complex blend of a Christ-like compassion for other people and a God-given ache for home. And if you've ever done this, if you've ever gone on to the mission field, you've felt this, this tension of I really genuinely want to lay my life down to serve other people, and I really genuinely wish with every fiber of my being that I was home. And I would submit to you that that is a wonderful picture of the gospel. It's the tension we live in, this, this desire to serve other people while longing for home where we're at peace. Is this not the Christian life? I live in a world that is broken and I long for one that is not. I feel a compulsion to stay and to help and I feel a lonesomeness for home that makes me cry. We live between two worlds, one broken, 
one whole. We serve one, we long for the other. That's the cost of mercy. And if that's you, if you're somebody who is feeling that tension and feeling like you're a contradiction because of it, you're not. You're feeling the tension that any Christian feels about the longing for the broken world to be replaced by the whole one. Locally, we're involved in mercy locally. In our vision statement here at CPC, here's what we say. I'm going to quote it. It says this, because Jesus called us to let our light shine before men so that they may see our good deeds and glorify our Father in heaven, our faith, our faith will be a public faith. We will aspire to love and serve all our neighbors in the places where we live and work and play. That is the work of mercy, and it is the bulk of the mercy we will do. Most of the opportunities we're given to show mercy are local with people that we know in situations that we're familiar with. Mercy can look like taking somebody a meal, providing a warm bed, giving the gift of unhurried time, which is rare, providing counsel, sharing wisdom, steadying a shaky hand while buying a person who is so desperate that they're about to make a rash decision, buying that person a little bit of time. Some of us have been in this situation right? Where, where, where someone, their world is burning to the ground and they call you in to ask you to speak and you know what I have to do now, the mercy this person needs is for me to slow them down because they can't see the field like I can and they're about to make a decision they shouldn't make, a decision to leave a marriage, to quit a job, to abandon a family, to, to, to check out of rehabilitation. Sometimes local mercy is slowing somebody's role. We're called to live as agents of mercy. It's a call to live with our eyes open, looking around at our neighbors, at our friends, at our coworkers who has need, and responding to that need, bringing some friends along. That's part of what it means to be a public Christian is to be somebody who says, I have this faith, and this faith tells me that I'm called to be an ambassador for Christ in every way. And so when I see needs, I respond. The goal of the Christian, see, is not merely to persuade people to believe like you believe, but it's also to trust Christ with our own lives by living as people who are called to imitate Him so that He might become known through our witness. That's part of the Christian life, is, Lord, transform me so that my life will reflect you. And here's the good news about that. We will never, it's complicated, but it's good, we will never run out of occasions to show mercy. The poor we will always have with us. And sometimes we need to remember that no matter how much money a person has, all of us have areas in our life of great poverty. And it'll always be this way until Christ returns. And in the meantime, he calls us to be people who show mercy to one another. And so we do this locally. And finally, personally, there's an appeal in here uh, to forgive. Sometimes showing mercy means offering restorative kindness to someone who has hurt us or offended us. William Shakespeare wrote in The Merchant of Venice, the quality of mercy is not strained. 
It droppeth as the gentle rain from heaven upon the place beneath. It is twice blessed. It blesses him that gives and him that takes. Tis mightiest in the mightiest. It becomes the throne monarch better than his crown. What he's saying is the quality of mercy is more becoming to a king or a queen than their crown is. Mercy is mightiest in the hands of those who have might, of those who have power. And what it reminds us is that sometimes we, each of us, come to situations that need mercy, that require mercy, and we come from a position of power, especially if we're offended by the person we're, we're approaching. Because we have the power not just to extend mercy, but we also have the power to withhold mercy. Don't. Because that is dangerously close to revenge. My friend Andy Osenga just sang us this song that he actually wrote for this, this morning, this, this passage, this sermon. And he said this, he said in the song, if you love me, well, I'm sorry because there's no way I haven't let you down. Nothing's on the other side of bitterness and envy, but bitterness and envy in the grave. Blessed is the man who sows his fields with forgiveness, for joy will grow where mercy leads the way. Here's the reality when it comes to mercy on a personal level. We will hurt each other. There's just no avoiding it. And the closer we get to each other, the greater the capacity we will have to wound one another. Some of the times we're going to hurt each other because we're mad and we mean to. But most of the time we're going to hurt each other because we just didn't know how not to. And that's the reality of being sinful and broken people in a sinful and broken world. And it's the beauty of the gospel that it is this that Christ is responding to. There's no avoiding the fact that we're going to hurt each other. And so we're always going to need to give each other mercy, which means we're also going to need to learn to receive mercy, which is practice for walking with Christ himself. Mercy is like the white helmets. It's a protest. We kick at the darkness until it bleeds daylight. Mercy is courage. We run to the blast and we dig through the rubble. Mercy is the work of leaving a person or a place or a thing better than we found it, especially when that person, place, or thing is vulnerable to further damage. And the beauty is all of this has already been done for us in Christ, who tells us then that your only reasonable response to his mercy is to go and do likewise. Mercy is being a Christian in public. And so I pray that we, as a church and as people, would come to be known as our King is known, by mercy. Pray with me. Father, your word is living and active, and you give it to us, and you call us to imitate you knowing full well that we will not do a good job with that. And yet you will use our attempts, 
to do exceedingly more than we ask or think. That's what you tell us in your words. So thank you for that. Father, I pray that this year, this new year that we step into, would be a year that would be defined by occasions to show mercy, and for some of us, defined by the humility to receive mercy. For all of us, actually. Lord, you're good to us. We're thankful for your kindness to us. We're thankful for your mercy and for your grace. It's in your name, Jesus, we pray. Amen.